within us. The human condition is alive and well, and we are, by nature, wanderers. We are, by nature, given the opportunity to to stray from, to flee from the God that we love, the God that has saved us, the God that has purchased for us eternity. Given that option, we are going to wander. That is our heart. And that that line in that hymnal, every time I that line in that hymn, every time I I sing it, it is a daily as a constant reminder of my need for grace. Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I invite you to open up to the book of Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, we're going to read verses 1 through 15 this morning. Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 15. At that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath through the grain fields, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Behold, your disciples do what is not lawful on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions? How he entered the house of God, and they ate and consecrated bread. They ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you, some things are greater than the temple is here. If you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Departing from there, he went into their synagogue, and behold, there was a man with a withered hand. He questioned him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And they questioned him and asked, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath in order that they might accuse him? And he said to them, What man shall there be among you who shall have one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more value than is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and it was restored to normal like the other. But the Pharisees went out and counseled together against him as to how they might destroy him. But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all. Let's pray. Father, may you speak to our hearts here this this morning. May we see your goodness, may we see your grace. May we see that your grace accomplished what the law could not. Or may we be impacted by the grace of God through Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I pray that as you leave this place today that that you will be indeed impacted by the grace of God, that you will be changed internally by the grace of God. I want to back up just a little bit and give us a little backstory of, of what's taking place and so that we can rightly understand this. We remember that the book of Matthew was written by whom? Matthew, y'all, y'all, y'all are so excited about that on this this Sunday after Christmas. Everyone, everyone has the 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 Christmas doldrums, the post Christmas doldrums. The, the the you're not wanting to undecorate the house. You're not wanting to take the tree down. 
your house still looks like a grenade exploded in it and there are boxes and wrapping. I understand. But let's, let's, let's see if we can be a little bit more excited about the Word of God this morning. The book of Matthew was written by... Matthew. Matthew! There we go! Now we're excited. And it was written to the, the Jews and it was written to present Jesus as the son of David. And so we understand that the theme of Matthew is, is very heavily Jewish. And so there's no need for the background for the people of the Pharisee, the, the, the segment of the religious leaders called the Pharisees, for the audience of Matthew, because they were Jews. They knew all too well who the Pharisees were, but we don't really understand who the Pharisees were. The, the closest glimpse we have to the Pharisees are, are those within our church Within our churches, who uh, whenever uh, the kids are running in the uh, sanctuary, they, they start fussing out. No running in the sanctuary. And whenever the kids are, uh, are, are acting like kids and wearing hats, no hats in the sanctuary. That's, that's, that's our closest comparison to the Pharisees. And that doesn't even come close to doing justice to who the Pharisees were. The Pharisee, the word Pharisee is taken from a Hebrew root. It's taken from a Hebrew word that literally means to be separate, to be set apart. And so the Pharisees were a group of religious leaders that that were very intent on keeping the law. We need to understand why they were so intent on keeping the law. Because it it, it wasn't that they just, that they had this this pet project and they said, you know what, we're going to keep the law and that's what we're going to do. We're going to be those people. We're going to be the law keepers. No, we need to understand for the Jewish people what had taken place in their history. God had set the Jewish people apart. He had called them to be a nation set apart. And for Israel, there were three main pillars of their faith. The first was the land that God had promised them. From the very first covenant that God made with Abraham, he said, I will make you a great nation and I will give you a place. I will give you a land and I will give you a people. After the time of the kings, after the exile, what happened to the land of Israel? Were they living in the land that God had promised them? No. After the exile, one of the pillars of the faith of the people of Israel was completely gone. They were no longer living in the land that they were promised. The second pillar for the nation of Israel was the temple. God had promised to dwell with them, his presence to be with them. And his presence was with them in the tabernacle. And then when Solomon constructed the temple, his presence dwelled with them there in the Holy of Holies. And God was with Israel in the temple. And so you had the land, you had the temple, the people where where the presence of God was. And after the exile, what happened to the temple? Babylon destroyed it in 586 B.C. And so, for Israel, two of the three pillars, the third pillar being the law, so you have the law, the land, and the Levites, or the temple, there's, a, there's an alliteration with T's that I can't remember off the top of my head, but there are three pillars for the faith of the people of Israel. The land is gone, the temple is gone, the only thing that's left is the law. And so, if you are an Israelite, and if you are a a devout follower of, of, of God, of Yahweh, and two of the three pillars are gone, 
then you're going to put all your energy and all your effort into maintaining and making sure this last pillar doesn't fall as well. And so that's where the Pharisees were. They said, you know what? We watched our predecessors, we watched our forefathers allow themselves to be steeped in idolatry, to be steeped in worldliness, and that for that reason, they lost the land. They lost the temple. We are never going to allow ourselves to lose the law. And so what they did in an effort to maintain that last pillar is they said, you know what, if, if the law is clear about remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, if the law is clear about, about what that means, we need to make sure that we never break that law. And so in order to never break that law, let us create an insulation around the law. Let us, let us make other laws, subsidiary laws, that protect us from getting even close to transgressing the law of God. And that's what the Pharisees had done. The law is very clear, thou shalt remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. But what the Pharisees had done is they had made all of these tertiary laws, all of these external, external additional laws, in addition to the, to the Levitical law of God, in addition to the ceremonial law of God, in addition to the civil law of God, in order that they would not come close to transgressing the law of God. So the Pharisees said, we are going to be set apart. So that's... Who the Pharisees were. They were not... We, we look at the, the narrative of the New Testament, we look at the Gospels, and we see Jesus always in conflict with the Pharisees. But we need to understand that, that their motives, many of them, was not vile and malicious. It was a desire to, to, to keep that last vestige of, of faith alive, to keep that last pillar alive. Now, it manifested itself and it turned into self-righteousness and it turned into that which is indeed vile and malicious against Christ. But I don't believe that that was the initial motivation. But understanding this, understanding who the Pharisees were, I want us to look at the text. Go back to Matthew chapter 12. At that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath through the grain fields and his disciples became hungry and they began to pick the heads of the grain and eat. Now, we need to understand that the disciples are not going through and, and feasting on uh, the fat of rams on this Sabbath day. They're picking the heads of wheat and barley and, and much of grain. And the Pharisees said they're, they're breaking, they're transgressing the law. How? How are they transgressing the law is Jesus' question. Jesus what are you talking about? Well, the Pharisees said, well, the law says you shall not work on the Sabbath. And the fact that they are picking the grain, harvesting, the fact that they are threshing the wheat, they're taking in their hands, and they're blowing the chaff away, blowing the, the external pod that the, that, that the wheat or the grain would be in, and cleaning it also that the only thing left is grain, and the fact that they are preparing a meal, which was unlawful to do, that was the accusation against Jesus and the followers, the disciples of Jesus. It wasn't that they transgressed God's law. It was that they transgressed the additional external tertiary laws that the Pharisees had put around the law of God 
in order to keep themselves from transgressing the law of God. Do we understand? So, when the Pharisees saw this, they said, Behold, your disciples do what is not lawful on the Sabbath. And Jesus brings them to David. Jesus understood that following God is not about a list of rules and regulations. Hear this, church. Being obedient is not about following some list of rules and regulations. The law was not given that we might be bound, but the law was given that we might be free. Look at David. Before all of your additional rules, before all of these these additional tertiary rules and regulations had been set up, let's look at the man who was created after the heart of God. Verse 9. They begin, after Jesus chastises and admonishes them, they begin to build a case against Jesus. This is the first time, this is the first time where we see the Pharisees begin to conspire against Jesus. In verse 12. Now this isn't the first time that we see them have issues with Jesus. That happens in Matthew chapter 9. I want you to look back there. Matthew chapter 9, verse 3. Jesus heals. Jesus is teaching, verse 9. Getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city, verse 2. He, behold, they were bringing him a paralytic lying on the bed. Jesus, seeing their faith, he says, Take courage, my son, your sins are forgiven. Verse 3. And some of them said to themselves, This man blasphemes. Chapter 9, verse 3 is the first time where we see any opposition to the teaching of Christ or the actions of Christ. Verse 12 is the first time where there is active conspiracy against Jesus. And it's going to escalate from there. And so, they begin chapter 12, verse 9. And departing from there, he went to their synagogues. I'm in the wrong. Verse. I know I'm there. All right. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Departing from there, he went to their synagogues. And behold, there was a man withered hand, and he questioned them. And he said, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And they said, What man shall there be among you who, when his, one of his sheep falls into the pit on the Sabbath, he'll take hold of it and lift it out? How much more value then is a man than a sheep? So, on the, so is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? And he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and he was restored to normal like the other. But the Pharisees, verse 14, But the Pharisees went out, counseled together against him, as to how they might destroy him. So here in chapter 12, there's this first conspiracy, this first counseling together against Christ. The opposition had escalated. And the desire to get rid of Jesus was now very much prevalent amongst the religious leaders. Now I want to point out that this opposition against Jesus is not new. We live in a world today that is increasingly tolerant of anything and everything other than Jesus. It's the nature of the world that we live in. If we work for the government, for the state, 
department, if we are in any way, shape, or form associated with a large corporation, there are certain things that we cannot say, certain things that we cannot do, because the world is tolerant of Buddhism, of Islam, of Hinduism, of Judaism, but not Jesus. This isn't new. This isn't something that has just come upon us here in the 21st century. Go with me, if you will, to the book of Acts, chapter 3. Book of Acts, chapter 3. There's a man who's laying lame at the gate, beautiful. He's begging. Peter and John walk up and they say, Gold and silver have I not, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus. Rise and walk. They grab his hand, they pull him up, the man starts shouting, praising God. But I want us to notice that in John chapter 3, I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 3, Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus, the Nazareth. Rise and walk. And then in chapter 4, Peter and John are arrested for this very act. Verse 13 of chapter 4. Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John, they understood that they were uneducated, untrained men. They were marveling and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they ordered them to go aside, outside of the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, what are we going to do with these men? For the fact that a miracle, a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them, it's apparent to all who live in Jerusalem that we cannot deny it. But in order that it may not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to any man in this name. Do you see that there in the text? They weren't ordered to stop healing. They weren't ordered to stop benevolent acts. They weren't ordered to stop praying. They weren't ordered to stop gathering together. What was their warning? Don't talk about Jesus. That's the warning. That's what the Jewish religious leaders said that we cannot have this we cannot have them speak about Jesus. They can talk about God. They can talk about loving one another. They can talk about doing good. They can even do good. They can heal. They can do benevolent things, but they can't talk about Jesus. And if you go to chapter 5 of Acts, they're arrested again. Verse 20 verse 28 saying, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. The issue for the Jews was not their benevolence, it was not their goodness, it was not their kindness, it was the name of Jesus. It's interesting, in the country that we live in, It's not surprising that Christmas is the largest holiday, the most widely celebrated holiday in the United States. What is interesting is that the object of Christmas is a baby. Now this same baby grew 
was arrested, was tried, was convicted of a felony, capital crime, was crucified, was buried, three days later rose from the grave. This same Jesus that we put out decorations for in October, you go through Hobby Lobby and you go through the mall and, and in October they're beginning to decorate for Christmas because they're all excited about the Christ child. Well, they're all excited about the almighty dollar. But, but the reality is, is that, that the world that we live in, the culture that we live in is enamored with this baby. But on Easter, they decorate with Easter eggs and Easter bunnies. They don't decorate with empty tombs. They don't decorate with an empty cross. Why? Because a baby poses no threat. A baby demands no allegiance. A baby is helpless. But a risen Savior commands allegiance. A resurrected Christ demands you acknowledge His power and authority and deity over life and death, over sin and the grave. It wasn't it wasn't Jesus that they were opposed to. It was Jesus' authority that they were opposed to. When Jesus challenged their understanding, when Jesus challenged their status quo, that's what got them uncomfortable. When they said, Jesus, your disciples are, are harvesting and they're, they're winnowing and they're threshing and they're preparing a meal on the Sabbath. If Jesus had said, you know what, you're right. I probably ought to fuss at him and ought to correct him. In the story, in the discussion, but Jesus challenged, he said, oh, guys, you're missing the point. And he questioned their authority and he spoke as one having authority and he pointed them not to these tertiary laws, but he pointed them back to the scripture pointed them back to the text, and commanded deity and commanded authority over them, that's when they got offended. That's when they said, okay, we're not going to submit ourselves to His Lordship. We're not going to submit ourselves to His authority. So here's the question I have to you. Have you submitted to the authority of Jesus? If what Jesus says and what Jesus teaches challenges your thought, challenges your way of life, challenges your status quo, are you willing to submit to his authority or are you like the Pharisees? Oh, we got to do something. We have to figure out a way so that we can still maintain our status quo, so that we can maintain our comfort, so that we can maintain our authority. Or are you willing to submit yourself under the authority of Jesus? As Jesus expounds upon the law, he points out to the Pharisees that the law was created 
for, look at the text, verse 8. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. And elsewhere in Scripture we see that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so we, we understand that the Sabbath, that God's, God's ordination of the law and God's, God's set-apartness is made for man. It is a gift for man. And so Jesus expounds upon this. The law is intended, is always intended, to reveal the character of God. Why is there even a Sabbath? We go back to Genesis. God created in six days, and on the seventh day He rested. The Sabbath is a demonstration or a revelation of the character of our God. The, the, the law has always designed, has always been a has always been intended to be a revelation of God's character of love and mercy. Interestingly, the law is intended to protect us, to guide us. As a kid, I didn't quite understand this. And as a teenager, I really didn't understand this. Why do I have to do what mom and dad says I have to do? My kids love it whenever we give them rules. They love it whenever we tell them, you can't go outside without shoes on. And this is, this, is the one, uh, this is the one that I find the, the easiest to illustrate. I have a, a six-year-old son, uh, Nicholas, and Nicholas does not like to wear shoes ever, anywhere. He gets in the car, he takes his shoes off. He gets to church, he takes his shoes off. He goes to other people's houses, he takes his shoes off. The, the phrase I say more than anything else to, to Nicholas is, Nicholas, wear your shoes. In fact, whenever we buy him shoes, we buy two or three pair at a time. Because he will, he will inevitably leave one somewhere. And, and, and we'll be leaving, and Nicholas, where's your shoes? Uh, I don't know. I can't tell you how many times I've gotten home and there's been one shoe and we go to, we go to dress him the, the next day to put on shoes and there's only one. And, and we're like, okay, how, how does this happen? How do you come home with just one shoe? I don't know. Well, the rule is you can't go outside without your shoes on. Well, that's because mom and dad are mean. And mom and dad are hateful. And mom and dad just want to impose all these external laws and these external rules because we just want to make their life difficult. We don't want them to be outside playing and having fun. No. We want them outside. The more they're outside, the less they're inside. The more they're outside, the less they can mess up, the less they can destroy, the, the, the quieter it is. We enjoy them outside. But we also know that the inevitability of them being outside without their shoes on is they're going to step on something, they're going to stub their toes, something bad is going to, it's going to end poorly for them, which means it's going to end poorly for us. And so we understand that we, we have laws and we have rules for their protection because we love them. Why is it then that we look at God's laws and God's rules that we see them the same way Nicholas sees the rule about the shoes? But God, it would be so much easier if you would just let us do this. If we could just go outside without our shoes on, if we could just just live how we want to live, life would be so much better. God says, you don't understand. You don't know what I know. You don't know that just last week, we got a new roof put on the house. And there are roofing nails all over the yard. And if you go running through the yard without your shoes on, you're going to get a nail stuck in your foot and we're going to be at the hospital. God says, you don't know, you don't have 
the knowledge that I have. You don't have the omnipotence that I have. You don't have the understanding that I have. That while this in the short term seems to be best for you, that in my omniscience and in my sovereignty and in all that I am, that I know what is best for you. So I've given you these laws, I've given you these parameters. And the law of God is intended to be loving and kind and caring and give us guidance and show us mercy and show us grace. We buck against that. We understand through all of the scripture that the law of God is intended It's intended to point us to be our tutor, to be our schoolmaster. Galatians chapter 3 says it like this. Paul writes to the church in Galatia who were stuck in legalism and stuck in self-righteousness. And he said, he said, guys, you don't understand this. The law, the letter of the law is not what I want. It's not what God wants. Verse 24 of chapter 3. Paul says, therefore, the law has become our tutor, our schoolmaster, to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified. The law is intended to bring us to grace. Jesus' concern was never the letter of the law. We go back to the Sermon on the Mount. He spent his entire Sermon on the Mount pointing them away from the letter of the law, away from all of these tertiary laws that have been created by man, to the spirit of the law, to the heart of the law. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. You've heard it said, don't commit murder. I say, if you look at your brother with hatred in your heart, you've already committed murder. It is not about the letter of the law, but it's about the spirit of the law. Jesus was never concerned with the external because he understood if we fix the internal, the external will take care of itself. Go with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 23 as we close. They were angry. The Pharisees were angry at Jesus because he challenged their authority. He said, guys, you're looking at the external. The external doesn't matter. Matthew chapter 23, verses 25, 26, and 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, You clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they're full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish so that the outside may become clean also. Woe to you, you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs on the outside. You appear beautiful, but on the inside, full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. God's desire is that on the inside we experience the transforming grace of God. There is no way, church, hear this with me well, if the Pharisees could not be good enough, you and I don't stand a chance. If the Pharisees, who not only obeyed all of the the law of God, but had all of these other tertiary laws that they obeyed as well, if they couldn't be good enough for God, you and I don't stand a chance. The good news is, is that God doesn't want whitewashed tombs. He doesn't want our external to be beautiful. He wants our heart to be changed. 
the grace of God is most beautifully demonstrated in the relationship between a father and his child. My kids know that dad's a big pushover. He may bark loud. He may threaten a lot. He may warn of the spankings that are going to ensue. But they know that if I crawl up in my daddy's lap and I put my arms around him, I say, Daddy, I love you. And he's going to melt. He's going to be a blubbering idiot. They know that they can get anything that they want. It's not because my kids are perfect. It's not because they always do what I ask. Quite the opposite. Spend a few minutes with them and you know that they are far from perfect. But they're loved. And there's nothing that they will ever do that will ever compromise my love for them. The grace of God has the potential to be abused. If it doesn't, it's not amazing. Paul says, shall we continue in sin so that grace abound? May it never be. But Paul understood that the grace of God and the love of God, the compassion of God, had the potential to be abused. And so he's warned against the abuse of God's love, of God's grace, and God's mercy. Church, Jesus came that the law of God might be perfectly fulfilled so that you and I don't have to because if the Pharisees couldn't fulfill the law, you and I don't stand a chance. Therefore, God himself came, perfectly fulfilled the law, and says, come to me. Find grace in me. Find mercy in me. Find love in me. And in me, you will find the law completely fulfilled. Now that you are in me, let us live in such a way that shows the rest of the world of my grace and my mercy. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this passage, as we see the conflict, the Pharisees trying to be good enough, trying to do enough, Or may we see ourselves as we try and define righteousness by some external act. Maybe if I go to church enough. Maybe if I pray enough. Maybe if I give enough money. May we realize, Lord, that that's simply whitewashed tombs. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never tasted of the true grace of God. Which says no matter what you've done, no matter how far you've strayed, no matter how unrighteous you are, I will always love you. If that's you, I want to invite you this morning to come to Jesus. Maybe you're out there this morning and you're the Pharisee. You've put all these external tertiary rules and laws so that you can be good enough for God. 
Or maybe this morning, you're simply in awe of the grace of God. Wherever you are this morning, as we go into this time of invitation, may you do business with the Holy Spirit. May He speak to your hearts. May He remind you of the grace that is found in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.